from here in the Holy Land. Welcome to the Nourish Your Biblical Roots podcast. I'm your host, Yael Eckstein, President and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Each week, we'll explore the Jewish roots of your Christian faith and nourish those roots with inspirational insights and ancient teachings that are so relevant to our lives today. Let's get started. On this episode, we're going to talk about time, how the Jewish people have marked time for thousands of years, the calendar that Jesus would have followed in his days, and how we can all make the most of our time today. We'll look at God's directive to his people on the eve of the exodus from Egypt and uncover a powerful message about how we relate to time, how we can master time and avoid becoming enslaved to it. Every week, Jews around the world read and study the same Torah portion known as the Parsha. This week's Parsha is called Bo, which means come, and it covers Exodus 10.1 through 13.16. The Parsha begins with the eighth plague that God inflicted upon Egypt, the plague of locusts. But even after the locusts devoured everything in Egypt, Pharaoh continued to defy the God of Israel and refused to let his people go. Next, we read about the plague of darkness, which covered Egypt for three days. But even after all these plagues, Pharaoh still remained defiant. We read that God told Moses that there would be one last plague, the plague on the firstborn, and that after that plague, Pharaoh would free the Israelites for good. This is it. The moment of freedom was about to arrive. But what happens next in the Bible is something that many people gloss over without realizing the significance of it. Just after God told Moses that the moment of salvation was near, he revealed his very first commandment to the nation of Israel. Until now, the Bible has showed us what it means to live according to God's will through the stories of the patriarchs and the matriarchs and their descendants. But this is the first time that God himself gives a commandment to the nation of Israel, and it is a directive that the Jewish people still follow today. Now, if you had to guess what God's first instruction to Israel might be at this critical moment in time, what would you say? I would probably guess something like the first of the Ten Commandments to believe in God. Or maybe a foundational commandment, like loving our neighbor like ourselves. But that's not at all what God had in mind. And you might be surprised what the very first commandment was all about. The verse that I want to focus on today tells us God's first commandment to his people. It is Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. And I'm going to read it to you now. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. That's it. God's first commandment to his people. It was about time. He instructed them to establish the month they were in as the first month of the year. The Jewish understanding of this verse is a little bit different. In Hebrew, the word for month is chodesh, 
which is spelled exactly like the Hebrew word chadash, which means new. And so the Hebrew word for month and new is basically the same. So here's another way of translating the verse. This new moon is to be for you the beginning of months. This month will be the first of the months of your year. This translation gives us an additional directive from God, that the new moon is to determine the start of the new month on the Hebrew calendar. These commandments laid out the guidelines for the Hebrew calendar. They were given to the ancient Israelites on the eve of their departure from Egypt, and they are still upheld by the Jewish people today. These days, most of the world follows the Gregorian calendar, which is solar-based. One year is made up of 365 days, which is the amount of time it takes for the earth to go around the sun. But Jews follow a different calendar because of the Bible verse that we just read. The Hebrew calendar is a lunar-based calendar. It follows the monthly cycles of the moon. Jews also mark the beginning of the year differently than most of the world. Most people celebrated the new year yesterday on January 1st. And let me take this time to wish you a very happy and blessed and healthy new year. But the Jewish people follow the Bible verse that we just read, which tells us that the month that the Israelites were freed from Egypt is the first month of the year. Now, I just want to clarify something in case you are confused. The first month on the Hebrew calendar, the month of Nisan, usually corresponds to the month of April, which is in the spring. We celebrate Passover during this month because the Exodus happened in Nisan. But you might have heard that the Jewish New Year is celebrated on Rosh Hashanah, which takes place in the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is in the fall. This is because Rosh Hashanah corresponds to the day when God actually created Adam and Eve. It's the birthday of mankind. It is still a significant day, which is why we celebrate it every year. But when it comes to how we number the months, according to the Bible, we consider Nisan, the month of the exodus from Egypt, the first month of the year, just as the Israelites did in biblical times. So far, we've learned that our verse directs us to follow a lunar-based calendar and to begin the year with the month of Nisan. But according to Jewish tradition, this verse is also the source of the Jewish practice to officially determine the start of the new month, to celebrate it, and to sanctify it. Let me tell you what this looked like in ancient times. Some lunar months are 29 days long, while others are 30 days. So in order to determine the start of the new month, the Jewish court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, waited for two witnesses to testify that they saw firsthand the new moon in the sky. The court cross-examined these witnesses, and if they were found trustworthy, the court would declare that the new month had begun. The head of the court would say out loud, Mikudash, meaning it is sanctified. And the rest of the court would respond, Mikudash, Mikudash, it is sanctified, it is sanctified. 
That night, large bonfires were lit on designated hilltops throughout Jerusalem. One of the things that I love about living in Israel is being able to show our history to my children. We still know the locations of some of the hilltops where these monthly fires were lit, and I love pointing them out to my kids. My children can see and understand how those hilltops were tall enough that the bonfires on them could be seen from far away. And I explained to them how once upon a time there were no phones, and this was how the people spread the news that the new month had officially been declared in the Sanhedrin. When the bonfires were seen from designated hilltops north and south of Jerusalem, fires were lit on those hilltops to notify further communities until all of Israel knew that the new month had begun by seeing the bonfire spreading across the designated hilltops. The next day, it was a celebration, a mini holiday, a time to connect with God and bless the new month to come. Declaring the start of the new month and blessing it was all part of the directive from God in our verse, and it is something Jews still do today in a modified way. So now that we understand what God commanded the Israelites on the eve of Exodus, we have to ask, why? Of all the things that God could have commanded at that important moment in history, why did he choose a directive about the calendar? One answer is that this directive had a practical purpose. In the very next verses, we read that God commanded the people to take a lamb on the 10th of the month and to slaughter it on the 14th. The directive about when the month began gave the people a frame of reference for what to do and when to do it. But there's another reason why this was a fitting commandment on the eve of the Exodus. It carried an important message that the Israelites needed to hear specifically at that time. Up until that moment, the children of Israel were slaves. And what's the main difference between a free person and a slave? Time. When you are a slave, your time is not your own. You have to do what someone else tells you to do when they tell you to do it. But when you are free, your time is your own and you can do with it as you please. Let's look back at our verse. God said, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. The words for you seem kind of unnecessary in this verse. And in the original Hebrew, the phrase for you appears not just once, but twice. The rabbis explained that the words for you emphasize God's message to the people. It's as though he was saying, I'm giving you the gift of time. From now on, your time is for you. You are no longer slaves. Your time is yours. God's message to the people on the eve of the Exodus and the message for all of us today is that time is a gift from God and one that we need to value and never take for granted. This is an important message because when we appreciate that time is a precious gift, we are far less likely to waste it. 
Something that I don't understand is how people can say, I need to kill time. I'm always shocked. How could anyone say that about something as precious and as valuable as time? Every minute is a gift. I once met a person who I remember clearly because he truly appreciated the value of every moment. A few years ago, I had a meeting with a rabbi here in Israel, and I noticed a very strange clock on his desk. Instead of numbers around the clock, there were random Hebrew words in each place where a number should have been. I was curious, so I asked the rabbi about his unusual clock. He smiled and explained to me that each Hebrew word was a word from Psalm 39.4, which in English reads, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. When read clockwise, the Hebrew words on the clock spelled out this verse. The rabbi told me that he had this clock made for him so that it would be a daily reminder that time was a valuable commodity that wouldn't be available forever. He said that staying in this frame of mind was crucial for making the most of his time and achieving his goals. And I guess it works, because this rabbi has achieved more than almost anyone I know. He established a new city in Israel, served as that city's chief rabbi, wrote a commentary on the Bible, founded several educational institutions, and somehow found the time to counsel families and teens living in his city. This rabbi's in his 80s now, and he still makes use of every moment. And he can also look back on his life and know that he did the most with the years that God gave him as a gift. Time, my friends, is a gift. And implicit in the privilege of having time is the responsibility not to waste it, but to use it wisely. But the idea that time is a gift is not the only message that God had for the Israelites as they were about to taste freedom. By giving them the authority to determine when each month began, he was telling them that they were to be masters over time. God said time is for you. Time is meant to serve you, and you are never to serve it. God didn't want the people to exchange one master for another. He didn't want them to go from being enslaved by Pharaoh to being enslaved by time. These days, many of us are very busy. We are constantly running, trying to make it to the next thing on time. And then when we arrive, we hope that we don't run out of time. And if we are lucky and there's no traffic, we might even save some time. Our lives revolve around time. But there is a simple test to see if we are the masters of time or if time has come to master us. Ask yourself, do I have the ability to make time for what matters to me most? For the people that are most important to me? For the activities that I value? To do the things that I really care about? I have four kids and a job that is more than full-time. I know what it means to have many demands on my time. But being a master over time doesn't mean that we can get everything done on our never-ending to-do lists. It means that we can choose to use our time for the things that are most important to us. In a 2,000-year-old Jewish book, Ethics of Our Fathers, Pirkei Avot, the rabbis offered this advice. They said, 
Do not say, I will study the Bible when I have time, because you may never have time. In other words, if we wait to do the things that are important, we may never do them at all. Instead, we have to make the time for what is important to us. We have to be the masters of our time and use our time in a way that serves us best. If prayer is important to us, we can make time for it. If we want to spend time with our loved ones, we can find the time for them. If our physical health is a priority to us, we have to make the time to care for our bodies. And when we make time for the things that are most important to us, somehow everything else falls into place. I remember when my second child was born, Liami, and I felt that my oldest child, Mayora, wasn't getting enough of my time. If you've ever been a new parent, you know what it's like. The new baby is a 24-hour job, seven days a week, and then you still have your other child or children who need you too. I decided to schedule in coffee dates with my daughter before school once a month. I got coffee and she got chocolate milk and we just sat, were together, talked, just the two of us. These monthly dates were so special that my daughter still talks about them today, 15 years later. She says it was the best part of her childhood. Here's the thing. The whole date took less than half an hour. I realized that my daughter didn't need a lot of my time, but I needed to make spending time with her a priority. I needed to make time, even a short time, just for us, when she had my full and undivided attention. Looking back now, I am so glad that I used the gift of time in that way. No one remembers how messy my house was in those days, but I'll always remember those dates with my oldest daughter, and so does she. It's like the famous analogy you might have heard from time management gurus about filling up a jar with rocks, pebbles, and sand. If you put the pebbles and sand in first, you won't have room for the rocks. But if you put the large rocks in the jar first, the smaller pebbles and sand will fall around them and fit into the jar without a problem. In the same way, we need to make time for the big things in life. The most important things are priorities. And if we do that, the smaller and less important stuff will fit all around them. Like the rabbis advised, don't put off the important things until you have time, because you may never have the time. Instead, make time for the big things and everything else will fall into place. And whatever doesn't fit into our time probably isn't that important anyways. But as people of faith, there is one key thing that we need to keep in mind when it comes to time management. Experts teach that if we follow certain methods, we can expect certain results. But the truth is that we can do all the right things, and yet things don't always happen according to our schedule. And that's because even when we master time, God is still the master over us. I'm a very scheduled person. I have to be with all of the different roles I have. I schedule in everything from my time for work to time with my family to time for prayer and time for resting. I know that if I don't schedule these things in, they won't happen. But at the same time, I've learned that after I make my plans, I need to hand them over to God because ultimately, He will decide what gets done and what doesn't. If I run late 
or if I'm running on time, is in a way in God's hands. It can be frustrating when we've done everything right and still things don't go according to our plans. Kids get sick, traffic appears out of nowhere, meetings get postponed, and sometimes you just end up sitting with a friend over coffee who needs you for a little longer than you thought. And that is an important use of time too. What I've learned is that even when things don't happen when I want them to or when I schedule them to, everything happens at exactly the right time. This became so clear to me one night when I was driving home from work. I had left the office later than I wanted to, and all I wanted was to get home to my family as fast as possible. Suddenly, I passed by a terrible accident that had just happened. A truck collided with the divider in the road and impacted a car on my side of the road. I realized that had I been at that place just a few minutes earlier, that car, God forbid, could have been my car. I prayed to God for the injured, and then I thanked him for protecting me. I thanked him for running my life according to his timing and not my own. In Psalms 31.15, King David wrote, My times are in your hands. Ultimately, our time is in God's hands. And that's a good thing because God's timing is always perfect. If it were up to us, some things would happen faster and other things would slow down. But only God knows the best time for anything to happen. And so, whenever I'm stuck in traffic or running behind schedule, I repeat to myself, My times are in your hands. And I remember that God's timing is best. Instead of feeling stressed and oppressed by the demands of time, we need to remember that time is not our master. We serve only God. Time is the greatest gift we will ever have. And if we use our time in the best way possible, with God's help, everything will happen at the best possible time. In Psalms 90, verse 12, we read, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This verse is a prayer that we will truly appreciate the value of our days, the precious gift of time that God has given us so that we will use our time wisely. This week, consider how you might improve the way you use your time. Are there pockets of time that are wasted, time that you might be able to put to better use? Do you need to make more time for the people and things that matter most to you? Can you surrender to God when things happen slower or faster than you want them to? Every person on earth is given the same amount of minutes each day. What we choose to do with them will make all the difference. If we remain the masters of our time, we will master our lives, living in line with our values, our goals, and the people we love. Try it this week. I think you'll see a huge difference. Shavuot tov, my friends. Have a wonderful week from here in the Holy Land. Thank you for listening to the Nourish Your Biblical Roots podcast. If you like what you have heard, visit me at mybiblicalroots.org for more of my teachings, videos, blogs, and books. You can also follow me on Instagram at yael underscore or on Facebook at yael Eckstein. 
Shalom and see you next week.